Hello everyone and welcome back to the MTG Novels Project 0.4. We'll continue our reading of The Color of Magic, edited by Jess LeBeau. However, first I want to give a quick shout out to Coach at the Car Bazaar for the idea and the inspiration. Check the comments for links to his first three audiobooks. Full disclosure as well, I've had a speech impediment early in my life, which I've tried my best to overcome. I also apologize if you find my voice nasally or otherwise dislike it. I'm trying my best to provide you with the best content I'm able to provide. However, this being said, I'd love to hear constructive feedback which corrects pronunciation issues or provides other realistic feedback that could improve the project. A legal note. This is an unofficial audiobook with original contents belonging to Wizards of the Coast. This content is covered under the fan content policy established by Listeners of the Coast. Listener discretion is advised. We'll continue our reading today with the color green. Green is the balance between extremes. Those who favor green are solid people with easy manners. They aren't impulsive, as are those who favor red, or withdrawn, like those who favor blue. Those associated with green are socially well-adjusted and organic. They're conventional yet constantly on the go and have a taste for the good things in life. Green has, on occasion, being associated with jealousy or inexperience. But those who have a broader understanding know that green is natural, fresh, wise, and comforting, and those characterized by it show a sensitivity to social customs and etiquette. Green provides abundance and resources. It is passive and combative at the same time, and calls to those who want to be grounded in their natural surroundings. So our first story here is um, Versepolis, circa 400 AR. It's written by Paul B. Thompson. Steel rang on steel in the quick, crisp twilight. After a brief struggle, two men flew apart, one making futile slashes at the other. The desperate man was soaked to the skin with sweat. A long shallow cut more painful than dangerous, crossed his chest from left shoulder to right rib cage. Blood stained his homespun shirt. His opponent was unharmed, elegantly dressed, and with not a hair out of place. Young Joran stood out of reach, casually resting his blade on his shoulder. Had enough, Edgar? he asked. The wounded man pressed a hand to his bleeding chest. The sight of his own blood inflamed his anger past the point of sanity. With a howl of rage, Edgar charged Joran, sword out thrust. Joran turned aside on one heel, sending his foe plunging headlong into the tall grass outside the clearing. Edgar stumbled, losing his sword, when a tip dug into the earth and tore from his grasp. He outran his own feet and fell face down in the weeds. No one laughed. Edgar's seconds hurried to his friend's side. Joran's cronies brought him a cup of wine. Are you satisfied? Joran cut out as Edgar was hoist to his feet. The latter's response was, begin to, was to begin searching the high grass for the lost sword. When his friend stood idly by watching him, Edgar snarled. Don't just stand there. Help me find it. His skilled friend, Artul, folded his arms and said, No, Edgar. You've had enough. There's no point in going on. I'll decide when I've had enough. He's right, you know. Joran tossed his slim ranger to his man's servant. There's no reason to fight on. I am the injured party. 
Joran stood over and seized Edgar by the bloody shirt front. And I'm the better man, he said coldly. I should think that would be painfully obvious by now. Even a blockhead like you. Stay away from it, Edgar. And stay away from Will Williana. And if you don't, next time, you won't just need a new shirt. You'll need a shroud. Jordan, his fans and his servants, returned to the waiting carriages. As they whisked, whirled away amid the crack of whips and rumble of hoods, Edgar Sori sank to his knees, defeated, disgraced. His life was over. Artul and Mekak Meki waited for him joined them. The hard wagon was costing them a half coral an hour, money they couldn't spare. At last, Meki said, We're leaving, Edgar. Are you coming? Slumping on his knees in the grass, Edgar said nothing. Meki frowned and started to admonish his friend. But Artul took him by the arm and steered him to the waiting wagon. Let him be, Artul said. He walked back to town. Argivia isn't far. The hired dray master snapped his reins and the wagon lurched away. Edgar slid sideways off his haunches and whipped bitter tears, not only for losing the duel so ignoramously, but for losing Liliana, the love of his life. The last red rays of sun died a silent death behind the western hills. A light breeze kicked up, scattering the pale clouds and revealing night's first wash of stars. Swords thrust through his belt. He'd lost a scabbard somewhere in the meadow where the duel was fought. Edgar trudged doofully along the dusty road to Argivia. He had no idea how long he'd linger alone in the field, weeping quietly over the injustice of his life. At length, he mastered his melancholy and found his lost sword. He'd paid good money to Embrick, the ironmonger, for the sword and wasn't about to leave it behind behind. It was a windy night and the grass on either side of the road sighed continuously as the wind moved through it. There was no light except the stars, but the sandy road was wide enough for him to follow easily. Edgar's sweaty clothes soon chilled him as he slung on his journeyman's jacket, stuffed his hands in his pocket, the cut in his chest stung like a shirt full of bees. Ahead the road forked, one lane curving off to the right which was south, of the other lane curving off to the left for a corpse of trees to the east. Edgar slowed. Which way would take him to Agivia? He didn't remember passing a fork like this one on the way out. But then he was preoccupied on the outbound journey with visions of his hail rival impaled on his blade. He paused at the junction and tried to figure out which way he led back to town. Edgar was born in Epitier and had come to Agivia as a lad to apprentice to the Guild of Coppersmiths. His family had long ago been among the first citizens of Epitir, before Urza and Mishra fought the Ruinous Brothers' War. In the upheaval that followed the fantastic conflict, Edgar's ancestors found themselves reduced to trade. Coppersmithing was Edgar's chance to better himself. Now twenty, he is a third-degree journeyman, but he seldom, seldom traveled much outside the city and never at night. He stood staring at the fork, chilled by the night wind. His chest ached. Which way? A south road round around a low hill. By starlight, he couldn't tell if horses or carriages had come this way recently. The sand was too soft. 
and any tracks made by Joran and Artul's conveyances would have been quickly obscured by the wind. The eastern track was marked by a low row of trees on either side of the road. It was plain the trees had been planted by human hands as a windbreak, so he decided the left-hand path must be the road to Agaivia. Hitching up his belt, which was sagging under the weight of the sword, Edgar started down the eastern track. A distant dog howled. He turned back to look over the starlit fields and saw nothing but the vague shadows of clouds passing over the waving grasslands. Once under the trees, the night closed in around him. Stars and breeze alike were blocked out by the closely growing cedars. He heard a flap of wings overhead and ducked. There is a creature of the night abroad in this country, creatures unfriendly to lonely travelers. Ed Edgar drew his sword and quickened his step. Without the wind he basket, he detected all sorts of rustlings and stirring in the brush on either side of him. Either skirted first one side then the other, determined not to let anything spring on him from the shadows. At one point he thought he spotted a pair of glowing green eyes in the ferns, and thus at them with his weapon. A bird flew up shocking him. They flew away screeching. Edgar muttered a curse and hurried on. He was tired. The sword was heavy. His wound throbbed. He hadn't eaten since noon. His mind went back to the elaborate repast of Joran's servants had brought to the duel and spread out on fancy woolen carpets. Joran had offered him cold fowl and white wine then. Edgar haughtily refused his rival's hospitality. Now he'd give his left hand for a bit of roast chicken. Wait, were those footfalls behind him? Edgar whirled, sword ready. He couldn't see beyond ten paces, but there's nothing to see. Backtracking a bit, he found a large five-toe footprint in the dirt. They were like cat tracks, only much longer and more robust than any cat prints he's ever seen. He knelt beside the tracks and found he couldn't cover the strange print with his spread hand, and the night was very quiet, too quiet. In fact, all the cri crickets had ceased singing, and the stray rustlings in the underbrush were still. Edgar stirred up and ran. He didn't know what he was running from, but he certainly he didn't want to find out. After his initial burst of fear-induced speed, running degenerated into painful chore. Puffing with fatigue, Edgar slowed, then stopped. It was still eerily calm then. Facing behind him, he waited and watched, strained every sense to discover who or what has trailed him. There's a raffled shuffle of feet, followed by a crash off to his right. Edgar had had enough. He shoved his sword into his belt and broke into a hard jog away from the unseen stalker. He hadn't gone fifty paces before he saw a glimmer off the road among the trees. A light. Light meant people. He made for the north side of the road, expecting to have to cut his way through brambles and brush. To his surprise, Edgar found a neat hole in a hedgerow, an evidence of a well-worn footpath, leading towards the dim yellow light. With frequent glances over his shoulder, Edgar made for the small glinting beacon. From its soft color, he took it to be an oil lamp. It didn't waver like a flame, but gave off a steady amber glow that flickered only because Albert Edgar was darting among the tree trunks and hedges. The narrow path took him straight to a clearing about 25 paces wide. Offset from the center of the clearing was a patriarch among oaks, easily twice the size of any other tree in the area. Stout limbs branched off the trunk at low levels. Perched on one limb was a child of undetermined sex, perhaps 12 years old. A lamp rested on the ground beneath the child's dangling feet. This was so expected a scene, Edgar stopped dead in his tracks. The child sat with his, her, back against the mighty trunk, eyes closed and hands folded. Edgar slowly approached, 
The unseen menace behind him forgotten. Twelve steps away, he stopped again. This time, because the child suddenly opened his eyes. Edgar decided he was male. Who are you? demanded the boy. A traveler. I've lost my way, Edgar replied. You carry a sword? For my own protection. You are running. I heard you. Edgar mopped his brow with his handkerchief. Something was after me. I never saw it, but I found it to track. He stuffed the kerchief back in his pocket. What's a sprig like you doing out on his own in the middle of the night? I live nearby. With a swingle, single swing of his hand, the boy leaped off the limb, landing lightly in front of Edgar. He was just five feet tall, slender, almost gaunt, and he had vivid green eyes and pale hair. He was dressed in a faded gray shift that came down to his knees. The old garment was threadbare. It had been mended many times. My name's Dare. Edgar, he offered his hand, but the boy stared as if he'd never seen his jester before. Where's your home, Dare? Over there, the boy said with a vague wave of his hand. I go where I want. I do as I please. I spend a lot of time at this tree. Don't your parents mind? Parents? A throaty snarl interrupted their conversation. Edgar fought for his sword, while Dare scampled up the oak tree with the agility of a squirrel. You know what's out there? asked Edgar, pointing, putting his back into the tree. Panther warriors, said the boy. He's been after me for a long time. Edgar started to sweat. Panther warrior? Aren't those just lengthy legends? They're real. I hope there's not a whole pride of them. Edgar swallowed hard and gripped his sword with both hands. He'd been outfought already today by Joran, and he felt none too confident in his ability to hold off one of the fearsome panther warriors, a twilight race of panthermen who haunted the forest of Terrasair. He said, I wish I had more light. Take up the lamp if you want, returned Dare. Keeping his eyes on the dark, Edward squatted and felt about until his fingers closed on the smooth, warm rod, about as thick as his thumb. It was stick stuck in the moss at the foot of the tree. He plucked it out easily and brought it up to eye level. Only then did he see it clearly. The lamp was shaped like a snake, about ten inches long, and as rigid as an axe handle. It emitted a warm yellow light. Edgar let out a yell and dropped the glowing reptile. The same... At the same time it hit the ground, a dark shape moved across the periphery of his vision. Blindly, he lashed out at the moving form and felt the tip dig into something yielding. He recovered a gut-wrenching style, very close, drove out to strike again. This time, Edgar's bed met real resistance. He leaned against the, hor the hilt and the sword ripped into whatever it was. Something whispered past his face, followed by a setting spreading sensation of hit heat. Suddenly, there was a crack and his sword came loose. Edgar found himself tumbled in the dirt. Terrified, he struggled to his feet. The ironmonger's second best snort had snapped off half its length. Fingers tapped lightly on his shoulder. Edgar swung around, broken blade out. Gare, Dare caught the iron stump in his small, pale hand. In his other hand, he held the strange snake lamp. Be at ease, Master Edgar. The panther man has fled. Breathing hard, Edgar lowered the rune weapon. I never even saw him, he gasped. He saw you all right, Dare rubbed a finger across Edgar's cheek. He had three parallel scratches on his face, all bleeding. The boy showed him the blood. Edgar sat down heavily. It's not been a good day. You've saved us both, Dare said politely. I'm happy about that, aren't you? I'm caught all over, I'm lost, and love my life has been taken from me, Edgar replied. 
I can help you. Edgar dropped the broken sword inside. I'd appreciate best directions back to Argivia. Dare had the snow snake lamp close to his chest. I can do more than that. With my art, I can hear your wounds and repair your fortunes. Edgar raised his head. You're a sorcerer? The boy spread his arms wide. I am the guardian of this place. The manna of living things flows through me. And for your service to me, I will pay you. He pointed the glowing snake at Edgar. It seemed to grow brighter as it neared the older man's face. There strange, strange revelations frightened him, but he is too wary to run. Inches from his face, the snake's eyes suddenly snapped open. They were green as emeralds. Edgar flinched away, but the snake lengthened in Dare's hand until the reptile's head lightly touched his slashed cheek. A flash of heat passed through Edgar. His head reeled, but when he recovered, he found his cheek completely healed. Edgar slipped a hand in his torn shirt and found his chest wound was gone. There was still dry blood in his shirt, but no scab or wound remained. His chest was as unmarked as it had been when he left Argivia at noon. He fell to his knees. I thank you, Great One. Stare smiled and bade him stand. Edgar got to his feet. Around the clearing, the bushes and trees were filled with pairs of glowing eyes, all looking at Dare. Edgar shouted with relation that he was in the presence of a nature spirit, a tree nymph, perhaps. Despite his external appearance as a human boy, the eyes, hundreds of pair, pairs, watched in total silence. I'll, I'll be going, Dell, Edgar murmured. I've not finished there, said. You had two other inquests I intend to honor. He held up a hand, and there was a flutter from the lines of trees. An enormous story owl settled on the boy's wrist like a tame peregrine. This one is Ferris, one of my sentinels. He will guide you with sight of Argivia, though he may not enter its environments himself. The owl regarded Edgar with vast black eyes. Edgar blinked. Flyrus blinked. Startled, Edgar repeated the motion, and the owl imitated him perfectly. Don't mind him. He's feeling playful. Lastly, you've lost your love, I think you said. Uh, yes. Who is she? Her name is Reliana. He broke the owl's spell guiding gaze as he found the image of Reliana's face in his mind. She's the eldest daughter of my master, Perrick the Coppetsmith. Does her father approve of you? Edgar's face fell. No. He favors Joran, Skyne of the House of Holmdelson. Senior Master of the Bookbinders Guild. A wealthy family, a wealthy and powerful family. Yes, damn them. Jordan has every advantage that I lack: a full purse, powerful alliances, manners, education, looks. But I know Williana loves me, and would choose me if Jordan were not in the way. Dare thrust the rigid snake lamp tail first into the ground and sprung easily to lure them in the oak tree. The owl flapped silently to a nearby branch and resumed staring at Edgar. The older man followed Dare to the base of the tree, his hands working as he spoke. I challenged Jorn to a duel, he said, voice rising. We met in a meadow not far from here an hour before sunset, sundown. Wouldn't you know it, he had had fencing lessons. Fencing lessons, why I'd spent every waking hour of the last six years learning my trade. Your problem is a simple one, said Dare, dragging his bare knees to his chest. You wish the best Jorn, do you not? The words came out too easily. I want to kill him. Dare's green eyes fixed him with an unerring glaze. Killing is easy. What takes care of is the afterward. What do you mean? There are a number of ways to kill your rival. The trick is not to get caught or be blamed for the deed. Your fair lady cannot 
wed a man who has a date with the handman, can't she? True. But you have powerful magic, great one. There must be a way. Dara's eyes glittered coldly. Are you sure of this? He wasn't. But he thought this might be his best and only chance. I am, Edgar declared. An assassin might do the job. The boy twinkled his fingers behind his head. Humans are unreliable, though. When caught, they tend to talk too much. An animal, then. Perhaps a venomous serpent. Their side. Vipers are too random, I fear. They tend to bite whoever they feel like, and often just decide on their own not to bite the man you want them to. Spiders? Even worse. They have no brains at all. Exer felt his excitation failing. Even killing Joran was proving too hard for him. There's a way, a good way, to remove your rival, Dare said. It is the benefit of being hands-on, so to speak, and it will also shield you from any blame whatsoever. What is it? I can provide you with a charm to allow you to take on the aspect of any animal you choose. A wolf, a panther, a giant constrictor. In that form, you'll be able to find your enemy and distinguish him. Edgar pondered the idea with glowing excitement. Yes, that would work. None of Jory's fanciest moves or money can save him from a wolf. Liliana will be heartbroken by her suitor's death, and all the more sup suitable to comfort of another, Dare finished. I'll do it. Dare leaned forward, grinning. Edgar was disturbed to see the boy's teeth were shockingly long and pointed. What will it be, he said. A wolf? Edgar averted his eyes from the boy's feral visage. Ah, uh, no. There aren't many wolves in these parts. Remember a story here heard in a good cult's kitchen about a bear ravaging local herds of cattle. I think a grizzly bear. Excellent choice. There's no freezer fighter in all the forest. There pressed his fingertips together, arcing his fingers to create a tent with his hands. A greenish spark appeared between his palms, a spark that grew rapidly larger until it assumed the shape of a convex disc. Dare's useful brow nodded, and the muscles of his thin arms tightened as he concentrated. The disc became a solid amulet two inches wide, and when Dare ceased his silent conjuration, it fell to the mosses at Edgar's feet. He picked it up. It was an amulet of fantastic size and beauty. You, what you hold in your hands is living mana of the forest made solid, they said. Half his power will make you expend it when you transport him to a bear. The other half will be needed to make you a man again. There's thus his figured Edgar. Do not lose the amulet. Without it, you cannot change into a bear or cannot change back once assuming ursine form. Do you understand? Yes, great one. As a bear, why have human knowledge and thoughts? Yes. But you may not always act on what you think. A bear is not a man. Remember that. Edgar carefully placed the ambulance in his coat pocket. When he looked up again, there was gone. The bright snake began to lose its grow, and then night rapidly encroached on the clearing once more. A thousand eyes encircled Edgar, but this time he wasn't afraid. Thank you, great one, he shouted. I will never forget this. The great owl rose from the oak and flapped away. His socks waved inaudible against the rising background of crickets, peeping frogs, and whippoorwills. Phyrus circled around Edgar, thrust his broken sword in his belt, and hurried after the patient bird. Snowy's owl plumage was easy to see, even in pitch darkness. When he was gone, a panther warrior slowly approached the oak tree. His shoulder was bloody, and the end of a crude iron raper protruded from his wound. The panther clept to the tree and prostrated himself among the gnarled roots. Master, I am here, said the passive raggedly. Did I do well? 
Dora's voice filtered through the oak leaf sighing. You did well, Aga. You drove the human straight to me and played the stalking pathar to perfection. Your most gracious master. Pull out the broken blade, Aga. I will heal you. Pause for uses for the task. So the pathar had to use his teeth. His wound burned fiercely and he closed his jaws delicately on the ten-inch blade. With a sideways wrench of his head, the panther warrior drew out the broken blade. His catter wall carried far into the darkness, raising the hair on Edgar's neck as he hurried home. Phyrus left Edgar at the date of Argivia. The young man was so excited by his night's adventure, he couldn't sleep. He spent the time till dawn writing a passionate love letter to Rilia, predating it a day hence, but then Jorn would be dead, and Liliana his. His newest enemy's habits. <coughs> Jorn divided his evening hours among three taverns, Perkins, the Acorn and Hammer, and the Midas Well. Jorn and his cronies would be at Perkins come sundown. Edgar Maddox put in a full day's work at the coppersmith, buffering off his colleague's questions about the duel. All was well, he said. He told Mekki and Artul, the duel was over. That's always was love for Liliana. He stayed late in the workshop, ostensibly to repair a double boiler sent over from Tanton's distillery. When the shark was dark and empty, he got out the emerald amulet and placed it on his work table. Even live lamplight, the gem was dazzling. Though the surface was smooth, the amulet was faceted intentionally like a star each line cleaving from the center to the outer edge. The color was deep and dark, with gold highlights fracturing off the inner facets. Edgar donned his good jacket and placed Anblit in his inside pocket. He slipped his letter to Rilia under a pile of guild correspondences, going out in the morning. The city march announced the hour. It was time to go. Perkins was at the bottom of a steep hill near the harbor. Argarvia's harbor had steep, bowl-shaped sides. All the warehouses and business catering to the sea trade were seated down in the bowl, while the landlubber residents inhabited the high ground above the harbour. Perkins was a typical waterfront dive, a gaming house as well as a tavern, much frequented by sea captains and foreign traders. Edgar trod down the cobblestone lane, the shore breeze blowing in his face as he went. He thought about the first time he'd met Liliana. At the guild hall of the coppersmiths during the Feast of Fruits. He did not want to go, but Meki and Artul and the other jurymen chided and teased him for two weeks until he suddenly decided to attend. Normally he didn't like formal events. Greybeard guildmasters made windy speeches while he suffered in the stiff, uncomfortable guild uniforms. Edgar forgot that when he beheld Riliana. Her hair was black as onyx, and her enormous dark eyes spoke of wit kindness, and passion. He was smitten, and he followed her around the hall like a mirror net. She was good-natured about it, and even consented to dance with him. Their once-nore caper was the most wonderful six minutes of his life. The idol ended when Joran showed up. Liliana introduced the big sap as her fiancé. Joran monopolized Liliana for the rest of the night, but Elgar didn't give up, just because she was engaged. He contrived ways to return to his master's house and steal brief moments with her. What will you do if my father catches you loitering here? Liliana once asked him. I'll tell him I love his daughter, Edgar replied simply. 
She smiled. Shouldn't you tell her first? Edgar ran straight into the broad back of a sailor, idling at the red brick quail side, muttering apologies to the youth guy's bearings and realized he'd walked ten yards past Perkins Tavern. He quickly doubled back. It was early, and the house was not yet full. Edgar skirted the patents at the bollards and took a dark booth in a corridor, facing out so he could see whoever came in, though he preferred Pendragon beer. Argavia was a wine town, so Edgar nursed a flagon of muddy Corlesian burgundy and waited for his rival to appear. He was in the dregs when Joran and his four cronies entered, laughing and calling loudly for dice. The young blades cut swaths through the old other gamblers, clustered on the dice and card tables. Edgar watched Jorid bet and lose more money in a single pass of dice than he earned in a year. Wastrel, Spithraven, and he had the nerve to claim Liliana's hand. Quite unconsciously, he found himself stalking towards Holm, Holmdelsison's heir, flagging hanging at his side, dripping drops of blood red wine on the holy stone floor. One of Jorgen's pals spotted Edgar and dug a warring elbow in his friend's ribs. Jorgen straightened, dice posed in his hands. What are you trying to do? Jinx me, he said. Conversation died when the rest of the gagger spied Edgar. His grim countenance was plain evidence. He had not come to join the game. You, Jorgen said briefly, what do you want? I want you to renounce Riliana. Jorgen frowned. Are you mad? Is that your problem? To his friend he said, here, beat the poor fool in a pitiful duel. That would do shame to a street fair. And he has a gall to cost me in public and demand I give up my fiance. Now I ask you, is man mad or what? He looks distracted, said one of George Cody's, or drunk. Give her up, you worthless filth, or the gods themselves will take vengeance on you, Edgar cried. Five calls to anyone who moves this annoyance for my present, George said, bored. A dozen sailors and stevedores rose from their benches, eager to comply. One of Jorn's friends, a dark-skinned Jamimirin, slapped another fellow in the arm and said, Let you and me do it, Varno. We'll save Jorn five cores. Varno and the rugged-looking fellow who wore the emblem of the Stonecutter's Guild stood up and replied, Oh no, if I do Jorn's dirty work, I want the money. They advanced on Edgar, who swung his pottery flag at the Jamirin. He wore a gold-chased headband, and the cup shouted against it. Before Edgar could put up his hand to fight, Varno knocked him to the floor. There, among the boots and slippers of the dice table patron, he was kicked and hammered by Jordan's friends. The breeding up abruptly ended when Perkins Barkeep and some of the burly hired help intervened. Who started it? Sat the barkeep, tapping a well-worn cudgel against the palm of his hand. He did, said Jordan, tossed the man a coin and pointed to Edgar. The coppersmith was curled up in a ball on the floor. Right, with a nod, the barkeep signaled his boys to remove the offender. They grabbed Edgar by the heels and dragged him out the door, behind the bar, to the profane cheers of the customers. In the alley out back, the Perkin bouncers beat Edgar with staves, even though he did not fight back or speak out. The carkeep finally ordered them to stop, saying, Nobody makes trouble in my place. You come here again, you're a dead man. The back door slammed shut. Dazed and bleeding from a gas over his right eye, Edgar blazed with inner fury. And pops himself up against the rear wall of the alley and fumbled into his coat with aching fingers of the Elmer. Before he could, before he just wanted Edgar out of the way. Now he was going to exact a less discriminating revenge. He found the heavy stone and clapped it to his chest. 
He wasn't sure exactly how it worked, and he assumed when the time came, transformation would automatic. But for a long time, nothing seemed to happen. Edgar clutched the stone so tightly the sharp edges cut into his fingers. One thought raced through his mind. Change. 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 Raucous laughter filtered through the dark brick walls. The beating and ejection of one poor journeyman didn't disturb Perkins' patrons. Edgar blinked through swollen eyelids at the rear door. Four planks dropped with black iron. He struggled to his feet. The Elmer stripped from his grass and fell to the dirty collars. His anger still burned deep inside, but outfully he felt strained, muffled and disconnected. Elgar raised a hand to pound on the door of the real tavern. He'd make them fight him fairly this time. But it wasn't a human hand that swarmed before the fevered eyes. It was a broad, hairy paw of a huge bear. Edgar froze. Was this some kind of trick? He'd seen no flash of light, felt no surge of power when he willed himself to change. People always said these sort of things happened when magic occurred, but he'd experienced none of it. Holding up his other hand, he found it was a paw as well, tipped with five razor-sharp claws. His heart breathed faster. It was true. Praise Dare in his green magic. Instead of knocking on the door, he demolished it with two blows. His new body was almost too bulky to fit through the doorway, but he wormed his way inside just in time to confront one of Perkins' servants, arms laden with a washed up full of dirty flagons. The man gazed in horror at the grizzly bear, standing on its hind legs, its head scraping against the dark beam ceiling. He was the one who'd beaten and dragged Edward from the dice table, so as the grizzly smacked him on the side of the head with one brow sweep of its paws. At the man somersaulted sideways, losing the tum and crashing against his wall. His head was twisted at an odd angle, and his eyes stared sightlessly. The commotion brought more apron-clad servants to the swinging doors. When they saw Edgar, their eyes widened in shock, and they scrambled back to the door to the bar room. Edgar dropped to all four and charged, bursting through the flimsy wood partitions in time to toss Mooban into the bar with a shake of his enormous head. The tavern erupted in screams as the bear tore in. There was a mad rush to escape, and several of the drunker patrons were trampled by the rest in their haste to depart. Edgar rose up in his hard lanes again and waddled through the crowd, swatting men like horseflies. One man cowered by the overturned dice table. Edgar bowed at the furniture side and picked the screeching fellow up by his shirt. Only then he realized he'd cornered a woman, a prostitute by the look of her. He had no quarrel with her and set her down gently on her feet. She stopped screaming and scared at the terrifying bear. For a few seconds there was a calm center to the vortex of the chaos in Perkins. Then a fiery pain shot through Edgar's rear haunts. With a war he stunned and found Joran and his Jamirian friend back against the wall with two short swords in their hands. Since Perkins didn't allow sidearms, they must have smuggled them in. There was blood on Joran's blade. He stabbed Edgar, running his 18-inch blade into the bear's leg. Edgar felt the pain, but it troubled him no long more than a pinprick. Joran paled when he saw the grizzly turn on him. The beast roared, bearing yellow fangs three inches long. Shaking its head to the side of the bide, the bade lumbered forward. What's a monster like this doing in Argivia? gasped Jamarian, readying his slight blade. You're asking me, Joran replied. He lunged, jammed his point at the bear's eyes. Edgar swatted the sword tip away. Did you see? He set that whore back on her feet and didn't harm her, the Jamarian said. Maybe it's a tame bear. Edgar flung a broken table at Joran and his friend. Joran lost the sword when it became embedded in the table. He disarmed me, cried the astonished young man. Adal, give me your sword. What? What will I fight with? Never mind. Give me your sword, Adal. 
that Jamalian reluctantly handed his weapon to Jorin. Edgar advanced. Jorin lunged, hoping to drive his blade into the bear's heart. Edgar twists away from the sword trip and brought his powerful paws down on Jorin's sword arm. Jorin screamed as the bone audibly snapped. Adol swung a chair leg at the bear. Edgar blushed his feeble attack aside and thrust his claws at J the Jamirian. With a simple scooping motion, he eviscerated Adal. Only Joran was left. The richest young man, Arna Gaivian, crawled on his knees with one hand towards the door, craning his shattered arm close to his chest. Edgar stood over him, blowing hot breath down Joran's back. Joran collapsed, rolling to his back. Edgar stood aside him and roared, Now you die, worthy parasite. I, Edgar, will kill you. No one understood him, for he could only make the articulate sounds of a bear. He grasped Joran in both paws and hoisted him into the air. Joran fainted with terror and the pain of his broken arm. So Edgar shook him awake, eye to eye with a ferocious, implacable grizzly. Joran shrieked, let me go, let me go, I'm too rich to die. Edgar did let him go. He dropped him, and before Joran hit the floor, he thrust his claws under his rival's chin. With a shocking rip, he tore Joran's head from his shoulders. The lifeless body fell to the floor, and Joran's head, no longer handsome, landed on the bar and rolled to a swamp among the overturned cups. Perkin was empty. Exalted with his terrible deeds, Hedger could only had to revert back to human form in some quiet, out-of-sight place, and revenge would be complete. Dropping to all fours, he walled back to the kitchen into the alley. All he had to do was use the emerald again. But where was it? As a bear, he had no pockets, no place to keep the vile gem. He pawed through his clothing, now lying torn in the gutter. No emerald. Frantically, Edgar searched the alley from side to side. His bare eyes were not very strong, but his nose was keen, and soon found the lost gem in the shadows by the tavern slot pockets. Blows clanged in the street beyond, and he heard shouting and clamor of armored men. Survivors had the tower, had summoned the town wash. Edgar fitted away precious seconds, trying to take the emerald in his paws. But they are too clumsy to pick up and hold the gem. The shouting was getting louder. As a last resort, Edgar lapped up the gem with his tongue. It was hard and sharp in his mouth. Loudlike fled the alley. There it is, a voice shouted. Boisterings hum, and a volley of arrows flickered down the alley. One struck Edgar in the left shoulder. He groaned, careful to keep his mouth closed. With a sudden burst of speed, he tore through the band of watchmen into the side street. There were at least a hundred people gathering there with torches and makeshift weapons. At a son of an 800-pound grizzly bear bleeding from wounds on his left leg and shoulder, the mob yelled and hurled brickbaths, bottles, and stones. Edgar turned away and galloped up the hill. Fortunately, the mob ensued the city watch and their bowmen. He tore past the closely packed houses, startling the life out of an old gentleman in a, night, in a white nightcap who opened his door to empty his chamber pot in the gutter. A blood-soaked grizzly whizzed past and the old man stumbled backwards, dropping the jar on his own doorstep. Edgar's leg and shoulder ached. The mob was hard on his heels. Where was an alley he could duck into? He needed a few minutes respite to change back into a man. The emerald, slick and hot in his mouth, rattled against his teeth as he ran. He was terrified if he, it would shatter if he stumbled. He topped the head forty yards ahead of his pursuers. The harbor lay spread out before him, gleaming with a thousand lamps and lanterns. Major thoroughfares in Argivia ran parallel to the shoreline, but the intersecting road reached was no help. To the left was the street of the leather vendors, 
to the right the forges and furnaces of Ironmonger Lane. Edgar ran straight across. This was Lanyard Street, where the rope makers had their shops. If he kept going in this direction, he'd eventually reach the city gates. Arrows beat on the pavement at his ears, spurring him onward. To his increasing fear, he saw masses of torchlights flanking him on other streets. The mob was trying to cut him off. He paused to look back and saw the ranks of the city watch had swelled to more than 50. Even as he looked on, they laughed at arrows at him. An awful noise rose from the adjoining streets. Householders were turning out, banging their pots and pans and shouting. Edgar turned away from the side street when he saw it was full of housewives, armed with carving knives and rope makers wielding hatchets. He galloped a few, few yards into the next street, but his left leg failed, and he tumbled into the pavement. Before he could give up, a gang of young boys threw a heavy net over him. Men on horses had hooks and ropes attached to the net, and he pulled it tight so he couldn't move. The street filled with torch-bearing Argivians. Uh, quiet now, that their quarry was caught. The city watch pushed through the crowd and shrouded the bear. Pikes leveled and bows drawn. Edgar could not change back now. If they said, if he suddenly reassumed human shape, the people would stare him where he lay. The city watch or no watch. Nor he had, he had to be patient. Perhaps if he asked passively, they would cage him up and, and once alone, he could return to his natural form. The captured watch was haranguing the crowd. Whose bears was this? Where did it come from? No one knew. It must have come from somewhere. Bears just don't roam the streets of Agaivia, shouted the irate captain. A middle-aged man in log robes appeared. He had a pale skin and soft hands of a man who read books all day, and Edgar saw him approach carefully. The captain and the robe man exchanged whispered. Edgar grew cold with fear. If man, this man was a wizard, his plot would be unmasked for sure. Something unnatural about the beast, the man said. What are you saying, asked the captain. I'm saying the animal could be bewitched. It, could be it should be killed without delay. Edgar began to struggle. He rolled over on his back with such force he topped one of the horses. Keeping the lines taut, a fear of arrows punched into his hairy hide. Edgar bowed with pain, and Dare's jewel slipped from his mouth. Hold, shouted the captain, as the gent slipped on the cobble's low. Gingerly, he leaned into to retrieve the amulet. Edgar watched helplessly as the key to his metamorphosis was taken away. What do you make of this? The pale ground examined the stone. It's a diamond, he said, of the first water. The clearest specimen I've ever seen. Diamond. Clear. What happened to the green magic? The animal had it in his mouth, said the captain. There's your proof, said the parent sorcerer. Gems are often used in enchantments. As Edgar's life ebbed, he tried to summon the image of his lost Relia in his mind. She did not remain long. The last thing he saw, before the pikeman finished him off, was the face of the trickster, Dare, laughing. Somewhere, he was enjoying his jest. Riliana, veiled in black, departed the funeral of her late fiancé, Joran, in an open coach. It was a fine day, despite the grim business of the morning and she relished the sunshine as an antidote to her sadness. A small wicker tray was laden with letters addressed to her. No doubt condolences from her friends and relatives. Lady, said the coachman, I hope it's not too forward of me, but we're passing near Bowline Square. So? The monster bear that slew Master Joran is on display there, he replied. The city watch gave the carcass to the rope makers guild in recognition of their catching the beast. Why should I, why should I want to see it? 
He tucked his forelock respectfully. I thought it might do good for you to see the culprit's fate, lady. Rihanna knew the coachman was curious to see the enormous bear Evian and Agavia was talking about. It brought no pleasure to her heart to think the carcass of a poor mad beast was on display. But the coachman would be more careful and appreciative if she indulged him. And so she allowed him to detour to Bowline Square. With an elegant ivory letter opener, Rihanna broke the seal after seal on the letters in the trade. Each was full of unpleasant platitudes and empty rhetoric of regret. After three in a row that essentially said the same thing, she set the rest aside unopened. One letter remained. My dearest love, it began. Who wrote this? She turned over a page and saw Edgar's copper engraved signet. A flush came to her face. This will be a difficult day for you. Whoa, said the coachman, drawing hard in the wage. The carriage stopped. The crowd was very large and surprisingly orderly. They couldn't drive any closer than the edge of the square. The coachman stood in the seat, trying to see the infamous man-killing bear. I see something hanging from the gibbet, he said, shading his eyes. But it doesn't look like a bear. It's not a bear, said the old woman at the edge of the crowd. Haven't you heard? When a son came up this morning, the watch found a dead man hanging in the place of the bear. He has all the wounds the bear had, they say. A man, Rilliana said. She stepped down from the coach. Overnight, she had accepted the verdict that her fiancé had been slayed by a wild animal. There was talk the bear had came ashore from the harbour, searching for fish. Grizzlies are powerful swimmers. Now we're talking, telling her a man killed Jorin? Let her through, said the coachman, as Will and Wana walked forward like a somb and butylist, her husband's to be killed last night by the bear. Murmuring, the crowd slowly parted for the morning girl. She was aware of a blur of faces behind a veil, a flossy expressed condolences and bluntly cursed stares. Billia walked on, indifferent to the closely packed people around her. The frim timber frame erected to display the dead bear was a good seven feet tall. Stunt ropes were looped over the top timber, and the grizzly had been hoisted up to a standing position by ropes tied under its front legs. Williana drew off her heavy veil. The old lady was correct. The bear was gone. In its place was a napeless corpse of a man, a man she knew well, Edgar the Cobblesmith. That has been Vrice Police by Paul B. Thompson. Thanks for listening.